You know, I, um, I, you know we, we pray God would revive our hearts, don't we? We pray God that his presence would fall upon us and, and that he would, he would just start, he would start in here, you know? That's where it begins, you know? Because, you know, what we, really, what we really long for is a revival of righteousness in our own lives. And that's where it begins. That's where it starts, you know? You know, this morning at first service, at, at the end of the worship, um, Jim, uh, Blunt, uh, Jim Bradley tottled up to the front of the, the, um, the, the podium here and just turned around and, and just looked at everybody. And um, he was just overwhelmed. You know why he was so overwhelmed? Because he lost his Bible during the week. And, um, and someone in the congregation, I don't know what they knew about the story, but they just felt, they, 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 uh, they, um, they, they, just, they just felt a need and, uh, and they placed a Bible on his doorstep. And... Um, and he, and he just opened the door and there was this, this Bible there. And, and, and so he was standing before us this morning and, and this, this, this old man of God, I, 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 call, him that, um, I call him that respectfully because he is an old man of God. And, um, and just that's, that's heart, heart stuff, isn't it? You know, it's... Um, yeah, and it's just so so simple, but so so profoundly profoundly deep that those gestures can just stir and revive and and show us that God is speaking, because God spoke to somebody's heart and said, "I need to do this," and uh, blessed him. Amen. So, so you're well? Yes, you're well. I'm well, thank you. I'm a Donna and I are grandparents again. And so, um, little, uh, little, little Eden, little Eden came into the world a few days ago. Uh, great name, don't you think? Yeah. And she's beautiful. Um, let's pray, shall we? Father, we just thank you and we just praise you for your goodness to us and your faithfulness to us. And Lord, how wonderful it is that we as your children can call out to you and say, Father, and just know that you hear us and know that your heart is towards us. We thank you, Father, that you are our God and that we are your children and that you've planted your truth, the seed of your truth within our hearts. We thank you, Father, for, the, for, the, for the, just the, the, the overwhelming, the overwhelming... Lord, just knowing that you have arrested our hearts, that you have come into our lives and you've spoken to us as dear children and that you've planted your gospel message in our hearts and you've given us a desire to call upon your name and we know that we can come into your presence and, and know that you would search us and you would challenge us and you would change us and you would take from us anything that keeps us from you. And precious, precious Lord, that gospel message that transforms our lives and gives us something to share with this world that we might see the power of your spirit at work in us and through us. Oh, precious God, we're done with careless living. We want to live for you. And we ask you, Lord, to pour out your presence into our lives and revive us unto righteousness, Lord, we pray in Jesus' holy name.
Amen. Hey, um, can I encourage you over the next couple of weeks, would you please be reading all that you can about a king of Israel called Hezekiah? And because um, the next couple of weeks, I want to look at, with you at not just the life of Hezekiah, but the heart of Hezekiah and the reformation that God brought to the nation through a righteous king. Hezekiah is probably, probably the most righteous king that Israel had. People put him sort of alongside David, next to David. Um, but God used this man. He was 25 young people. God used this man. He was 25 years old of age when he came to the throne. And his father gave him a kingdom that was completely steeped in vile, vile idolatry. His father was worship, his father was worshiping pagan gods. His father sacrificed his own sons to pagan gods. And the kingdom was so far from God uh, when, when um, Hezekiah came to the throne that it, it, it's hard to imagine that they were God's chosen people. And, and God moved through this man and brought about this incredible reformation. So I'd like us to be looking at that. So one, one, uh, find him in 2 Chronicles 28 to about chapter 31. Find him in Kings. Find him in Isaiah, because Isaiah was the prophet in the time of... Uh, of um... So now you're all turning to the Old Testament. Don't do that. <laughs> That's next week. I want you to read. I want you to find out about this king. And, next, and this morning, now I want you to go to John 14 in the New Testament. So go the other way now. You with, with real Bibles and you with electronic ones. Do it however you do it. <laughs> In John's Gospel, we are given five chapters that cover the last night that Jesus spent with his disciples prior to his arrest and crucifixion. And that night is all about the Lord's instructions that would set the impetus of life without Jesus' physical presence in this world. So that means it's important to us. Because they had spent three years with Jesus. They had seen and heard things that no other human being had seen and heard. They saw the power of God manifest. They, saw the, they heard the very spoken word of God from the mouth of God. And Jesus was about to leave them. And... Uh, and they were about to live a life without his physical presence. So that's important to us. Because what he was doing, he was establishing the very force with which the body of Christ would move. The very, the very pulse of Christianity. It's the heart that was being shared that night. The heart of what it is to be the Christian church was being shared, talked about that night. And, and this is it. This is it. If we are going to follow Jesus, we need to understand what a servant is. We need to do that. And Jesus showed us that that night by way of example, by getting down on his knees. And what did he do? He washed the feet of his disciples. It was an example imploring the followers of Christ to never place themselves above another human being. Never. That's what a Christian should look like. 
never lording it over, never exalting themselves over another human being that has been created in the image of God. Never, ever doing that, but rather coming under, below, and lifting them up. That's what Jesus showed us, didn't he? And having set that example of, 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 of he then gave his command. We know the command, right? To love one another, even as Jesus said, I have loved you. And he was laying down that principle of life that would be evidence that Christ was with them, even though he was no longer physically walking with them. Now, the servant heart of Christ's love moving through the church is without question the very force of God to save, isn't it? You know, isn't that true? You know, throughout Hispern, throughout Hispern, there's a good word, throughout history, the true disciples of Christ have courageously, and they have, courageously lived this life of servant love to see, count, to see countless souls ushered into God's eternal kingdom. You just read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you'll understand what I'm talking about. But let me tell you something. As, as much as that night was Jesus unveiling his plans to, to assault and destroy the powers of darkness, as much as it was, the disciples there were far from being courageous emissaries striding forward in the power of God's love. They were far from it that night. To the contrary, they were fearful, they were dismayed by it all. And it was because with the very same breath that he was saying those things about the power of love and how we should live this life, he also spoke of denial. He spoke of a betrayer. He spoke to Peter and told Peter that he would deny him. You know, we go to the other Gospels. We go to Matthew's Gospel and we go to Mark's Gospel. And he points out that he told, points out that he told them all that they would be offended because of him that night. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that thought? Even as we sit here today thinking that I would be offended because of Jesus. Now, I know he's got every reason in the world to be offended because of me. I know that. But Jesus told them, those disciples that lived with him and saw and heard things that no one else has ever seen or heard, he told them that they would be offended because of him. They were staggered. In fact, he told them that they would all abandon him. And so that night... There's all sorts of anxieties building up within them. Again, imagine poor Peter. Poor Peter. He has just simultaneously professed his willingness to give his life for the Lord while at the same time labelling all the other disciples as nothing but cowards. Right? Only to be told by Jesus that before that night was over or early in the next morning that he would be the one that would betray or would even deny that he knew Jesus at all. Not only that he would deny Jesus at all, that he would deny Jesus, he would curse his name. Think about it. They are very, very, very bent out of shape right now at this point. And Jesus, knowing their anguish, says... Did I send you to John 14? Yes. Knowing their anguish says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he's saying to them, this inward commotion that is disturbing your thoughts right now, 
that is bringing restlessness to your heart, that is striking fear in the dread of your dead of your spirit, you know, perplexing your mind and bringing doubts. They had all of those things going on. He is saying you don't need to do that to yourself. You know, and we immediately think, easier said than done, right? Don't we? Again, think about that night, what's coming, you know, what they're going to experience. Roman soldiers, the brutality of the arrest, you know, the temple guard, the, 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 the fickle crowd, you know, just, just a few days before, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That same crowd now demanding his death. And certainly they expected they would demand their death as well. Demanding crucifixion. Why worry, hey? Why worry? I'll tell you why. Because it's terrifying, that's why. Because it's very, very, very scary. That was them. That was their reality. So what about us? What about our reality? You know, last night before I went to bed, I... um, I, I checked out yesterday's headlines and I just randomly, the first headlines that came up, this is what they were. Vaccine researchers alarmed after discovering that COVID-19 strain has evolved. That's a little bit of an alarming statement because everybody's putting all of their trust in a vaccine, right? And now they're telling us this thing is evolving. But then I kept reading these, I kept reading these, these, these um, headlines. Man charged after stabbing, a, uh, stabbing in Perth's north. A man strangles his girlfriend to death in a laneway in Melbourne's Chinatown. A man has been taken to hospital in a critical condition after he's assaulted in a shopping centre. The Uber driver attacked by drunken passengers. All these things. Pandemic. Crime rate is rising. Violence is escalating. Economy, economy is crumbling like we've never heard before, right? And morality, morality is on a dive that it doesn't seem that it can recover from, Right? That's pretty disturbing, isn't it? Well, Jesus says to us, as he said to them then, don't let your hearts be troubled by it. Don't let your hearts be troubled by it. Now, I know when we are faced with debilitating difficulties, the last thing we need, well, the last thing that we want to hear is very often the thing we need to hear. And on that night, the disciples, oh yeah, they needed to hear it. When their anxieties were rising, they needed to hear this. They needed to be told this. We don't have to do this to ourselves. That's what it means. Don't let your hearts be troubled. We don't have to do this to ourselves. We don't have to allow these things to affect us in this way. You know, I I look out there and certainly I say this world is falling apart and there is a darkness that is growing on society. It is swallowing it up. But still Jesus says to us, don't let your heart be troubled. Well, I hear that, but how? There's the question, right? I mean, it's great words. I hear that, but how do I not let my heart be troubled? When bad news comes, when the unwelcome is looming, when the loss becomes reality... How do I not let my heart be troubled? Well, let me say this. When Jesus says, 
Don't let your heart be troubled. It's not the words of a well-meaning friend that is saying, hey, listen, man, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Look, I know we need those friends, don't we? But that's not what this is. This is God's word to enable us to live a life of courageous hope, not just a momentary escape from the current trial. No, not just someone say, hey, it'll work out in the long run, but a way of living life with eyes open to God's reality for us. That's what this is. You see, I become fearful and I become troubled when my eyes are on or all too often fixed on the reality that I am building for myself, that I am trusting in, the life that I am constructing. You know, this is how I do life. This is how I make it safe, the the securities that I am providing. But the truth is, this is the truth, people, and no one likes to hear this. But there is no lasting security in anything that I am building in this life. There's no lasting security in anything I'm building in this life. Everything that I build is going to crumble. Everything. And no one wants to hear this next thing. Every single relationship that I begin will end. Every single one of them. Ultimately, the reality is everything that I build, everything that I trust in, there's a lot of eyes in those statements, right? Everything I build, everything I trust in, it's going to cease. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean we're not actively living a life to better ourselves and to provide for our loved ones. Please don't misunderstand me. But you might be thinking... Listening to that, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad. I'm, I'm really glad I came here to hear this depressing monologue this morning, right? No, no, no. Please, please understand me. It's living, and this is the important statement. It's living with our eyes open to the truth of the ultimate fallibility of the things that I build and trust in, the ultimate fallibility of those things that frees me to trust God's reality for me that will never fail and that will always endure and that will always be eternal. Do you understand that statement? So Jesus says to this group of troubled disciples whose reality is unraveling around them, says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. How do I not again let my heart be troubled? Well, I believe what? I believe whose reality? I believe the reality I'm building. I believe the securities I'm building. I believe his reality for my heart and for my life and for my family. And for my community and the tense, the tense that he gives to us is this continuous, ongoing belief in him. I've seen so many Christians live their life like this, right? Up and down, up and down. I'm believing, I'm trusting in who Jesus is and what he's done for me and what he promises me. And, and, and then the hard times hit and now all of a sudden I can't trust in that anymore. I start building myself. I start trusting in my own. And that gets me nowhere. 
And I find myself like the nation Israel going, Lord, save me. And he comes in and he delivers me. And I'm a worshiper again and I'm before the throne of grace again and I'm being blessed again and I get comfortable and once again, what do I do? And there's this up and down and this up and then down. And what Jesus is saying here is we need to live in this continuous, ongoing, active reality of believing in his reality for my life. His reality for my life. As I said to you, the reality I create, it will only ever be passing away. But his reality is established on the truth of his sovereignty, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. While the world around me, yeah, it's coming apart. It really is. I have to believe, this is what I'm talking about. I have to believe that the supreme authority in the universe, the all-knowing, the all-seeing, the ever-present, the all-powerful God, creator and saviour, who loves me more than I can ever begin to imagine or understand, it is he, it is him, he is the one who is telling me not to be troubled. That makes a difference, right? He's the one. Can I say it again? If I were offering you, this is Chris talking now, if I were offering you an obligatory well-wish because I've got nothing more than words to give you, it would carry no power, no power whatsoever to sustain you through your trial. But it's not me. This is God saying it. This is God speaking. And he has all the power to sustain you until the very end. And he will do that and he will keep you until the day that he ushers you into his eternal kingdom. That's reality. That's his reality. That's where we live. And if you will believe, Christian, if you will rest, this is what belief is, if you will rest the weight of your life and your eternity upon that, your heart will be lifted above the temporal troubles to rest in eternal promises. Please hear that. You know what that doesn't mean? That doesn't mean that God is promising to take all your troubles away. That's not what he's saying. What he gives us is an anchor. It's an anchor for our souls that is firmly planted in Where? In eternity. Nowhere in anything on this world, in this temporal temporal plane. No, no, no. That anchor is planted in the eternal, in the presence of God. That's why Jesus now goes on and says, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would tell you. But I've gone to prepare a place for you. And I go and I prepare a place for you and I will come again and I will receive you to myself and where I am, there you will be also. Aren't they precious words? And he says, where I go, verse 4, you know. And you know the way. To all believers, Jesus is saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because I've prepared a place for you. That's reality. I'll prepare a place for you. It's in the presence of the eternal God. I'm going to come again and I'm going to take you there. Peter says these wonderful words. Peter, this Peter, 
who denied Christ. This Peter, who that night when Jesus was being tried, ran out into the darkness with a broken heart after cursing the very name and denying that he even knew Christ. This Peter, who Jesus would meet on resurrection morning, this Peter, who Jesus would come to on the Sea of Galilee and say, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. This Peter, who would stand before the very crowds who had crucified, who demanded Christ's death, stand before the very crowds in the very streets of Jerusalem and cry out to them, telling, This is the Christ whom you have crucified. He is the Saviour. This is He. This Peter said these words in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Here's your anchor. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and doesn't fade away. It's reserved for you in heaven. Verse 5, who are kept, and this is us right now, That's reserved for us in heaven, but us right now, who are kept by the power of God, how? Through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. In this you greatly rejoice. No, we're not troubled. Rather, contrastly, we greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, we have been grieved in various trials. If it's tough now, no, he says, don't trouble. Don't let it do to your hearts. You've got absolutely every reason to be rejoicing. Rejoicing. Paul, in Ephesians, in the first chapter, said, in Christ, this is verse 11. It says, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Let me tell you. Let me tell you, the Bible is so very, very clear. God has set an anchor in heaven that cannot be moved and our eternal souls have been attached to it. See, that should cause us to rejoice. Have been attached to it. Do you see that right now? With the eyes of your faith, you are attached to eternity, to the presence of our God. That's why, you see, that's why there's a searching in mankind. You know, some may not realise it. In fact, most don't realise it. But there's a longing for heaven. Or more accurately, more accurately there, there is a wanting to be with Christ. And from the beginning to the end, there is a yearning in the soul of man. Every single man. Every single woman, every single child, there is a yearning in the soul to go home. I know I've talked about this before, but it's in all of us. You know, when we were, again, when I was a kid, do you remember this? It didn't matter what we were handed in life. It didn't matter how difficult our lot was. There was something in us that said we were great. Right? We interpret it wrongly, I know, as children. But for me, I interpret it in the backyard. 
Because in the backyard, I was a pretty good cricketer. In the backyard, I was a pretty, pretty fierce bowler. You know, my, my older brother told me so, and I believed him. You know, you know? But, but you know, and I, I, in this sense of greatness, interpretation of it in me was, you know, one day, because I love Dennis Lilly, you know. One day, the history books were going to record the greats, Dennis Lilly, Donald Bradman, Chris Fisher. You know? It was in me. This was there. But, you know, the moment I got out of my backyard, I realised I wasn't that good at all. You know? And life came. And life began to bear down. And that reality simply became a dream and that was just childhood whimsical dreams and it got crushed pretty quickly. I was just interpreting it wrong. That greatness, that desire, it's got nothing to do with me or my accomplishments or our accomplishments. That, that desire is our eternal destiny. When we would be in the presence of God, that's what that was about, you know? Just want to go home. Just want to go home. You know, you know I love C.S. Lewis. He wrote these words. He wrote a book called The, Promise of, uh, the, the Problem of Pain. And he said this. There are times when I think we do not desire heaven. But more often I find myself wondering whether in our hearts of hearts we have ever desired anything else. He goes on to say, it is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable, the unappeasable want, the thing we desire before we meet our spouse or made our friends or chose our work in which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows partner or friend or work. We're still going to desire home. See, ever since Adam... Ever since Adam lost fellowship with God, man has been trying to find his way back into the garden. You know? We see it throughout civilization. It's that search for the utopian dream. It's the pursuit in so many things and in so many different ways. It's in humanity. It's in us. It's encoded in our created genome. You know that? And that's why Jesus holds up eternity, he holds up the hope of heaven as a cure for the troubled heart. He, he's, he's reminding us that we are on a course, a course where good, better, and very best is still ahead of us. As Peter said, it's reserved for us in heaven. It's where Paul, remind, Paul reminds us, you know that verse I go to all the time in... Um, in Ephesians where it says about the age to come that God is talking about eternity that God may show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us throughout all of eternity through Jesus Christ you know the Bible says and another verse I go to all the time the Bible says the moment that we see him face to face when he appears remember it's 1 John chapter 3. When he appears, we shall be what? We shall be like him, for we shall behold him as he is. And again, when we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see in verse 12, for it says, For now we see through a glass dimly or darkly, your Bible might say, but then face to face. I know in part now, Paul says, 
but then shall I be even known as I am known. Do you get what it's talking about? Do you get the idea of heaven? He said, you are going to be like Jesus. You are going to know all things, yet even in light of that, throughout all of eternity, you're going to discover and you're going to experience an ever-expanding realisation of just how much he loves you and his mercy. See, Paul got caught up into heaven. It's recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he had a vision of heaven. And he said the things that he saw were inexpressible things. Things that could not be told, in fact. So I'm always a bit weary about someone who's been to heaven and come back, comes back and writes a book about it and makes some money out of it. Because the Apostle Paul tells us that it simply would be a crime to try and express the glory of heaven, the things that await us with a human language. In other words, it's inexpressible. That's the word he uses. So Jesus holds up heaven to remind us to keep, or to keep it clearly in our view that our hearts will not be troubled. We're going home, people. We're going home. We're going home where our Father is. What did he say? In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself that where I am you shall also be. And where I go, you know the way. You know the way, Christian, don't you? What did Jesus say at the tomb of Lazarus? He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to to the Father but through me. You see, Jesus doesn't offer a, a map or a set of directions or a compass. No, he offers himself. He offers himself. The way is personal. Jesus is the way. The way, the truth is personal. Jesus is the truth. The life is personal. Jesus is the life. And you're not going to find it through any suggested scheme or plan or, or action. It's not someone's assertion or expression of judgment or opinion. It's none of that. It's, it's the person of Christ. He said to the disciples all those years ago, he said, I'm leaving. But don't let your hearts be troubled because I'm going to prepare something for you. And a few hours from that, can I just invite the ushers to come and share the communion elements? And a few hours from that, Jesus will be arrested and he will be taken and he will be placed upon a cross and he will die for the sins of mankind. They will be fearful. They will forget everything that he has taught them, everything that he has shown them. They will become overwhelmed. Is it any wonder he said to them, let not your hearts be troubled? On resurrection morning, they will be hiding in a room, afraid for their lives. The women will make their way to the tomb. They will discover that the stone has been rolled away. They will be met by angelic beings. Mary 
Magdalene will be the first to see the risen Christ. The women, Mary, they'll go running back to the men who are hiding and tell them that he's arisen. The angels gave them the message and said, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? He is risen. Go and tell the disciples. And he went and he told, they went and they told and the disciples didn't believe. But Jesus, that night, after appearing to Peter somewhere that day, after appearing to two on the road to Emmaus that day, after that, he then appeared with the disciples in that room and they again were full of fear and fright. What did he say? What did he say to them? He said, peace, peace, be still. He said, don't be afraid. I wonder, I'm only wondering now. I'm only wondering, did that statement just a few nights before, don't let your hearts be troubled. I wonder if suddenly it bore fruit in their lives and their hearts and their minds. The promises that he wasn't going to abandon them, that he's going to send another. The Holy Spirit was going to come and he was going to be with them always, even until the end of the age. They were going to go home. They were never going to be alone. You know, there's this wonderful image that we have. And it might not seem wonderful at first, but in the garden, Adam and Eve, we know the story. The Bible says we're driven from the garden. And it says, because that they would not eat of the tree of life. You see, in the presence of God in the garden, we're told is eternal life in the presence of God. And fallen man, because of his sinful, willful sinfulness, found himself outside of the garden. And we've got this image in the Bible. There is a gateway to the Garden of Eden. And the Lord set two cherubim, these magnificent angelic beings, either side of the gateway. And in their hands were spinning swords to prevent man from going back into the presence of God. He couldn't go back into the presence of God in his fallen state. And so there began the beginning of God's plan of atonement. Because that God who walked with them in the garden would one day come back and walk with them through the dusty streets of Judea and tell them about his love for mankind and tell them about the plan and tell them that one day, one day, we're all going home. But there's something I've got to do first. I've got to take care of the thing that has separated us. And he goes to a cross and he dies for the sins of mankind. That's what separates us from God. And what's in your hand right now? That piece of bread and that cup that represents his blood, the bread, his body, the cup, his blood, is to remind us that God has done absolutely everything that needs to be done for enable us to be able to go home to have that comfort, to have that assurance, to know that we're going home. That's why he said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so we take this piece of bread and it reminds us that Jesus, the very bread of life, came down. That we might feed upon the very bread of life and never hunger again. This blood, this cup that represents the blood of Jesus Christ, 
that was shed for the remission of sins, that continually washes us clean of all unrighteousness, that he might look upon you as his child, washed clean, holy. We don't ever have to hunger again. We don't ever have to thirst again for spiritual things. Why? Because, because we're going home. The cross has made the way. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ, your son. We thank you for his body lifted up for us. We thank you for that substitutional death and the fact that he took all of our vileness, all of our iniquity, and he put it to death upon the cross that we might rise with him in resurrection life for all eternity. It's beyond our comprehension, Lord. But how wonderful it is to know that you died for us. Let's take the bread together. this precious, precious cup that represents our sins washed away. So before we take this this morning, let's ask God to search our hearts. If there is anything you know that you need forgiveness for right now, let's just take a moment and ask God to search our hearts and to forgive us. creatures, these cherubim angels standing at the entrance of the Garden of Eden with flaming swords preventing sinful man from going back into the garden. That exact place where Adam and Eve were driven out of the presence of God and then started their life outside the garden and all of its fallenness and all of its brokenness and all the, 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 the newness of the reality of sin that must have flooded their soul their perfect souls that corrupted their, their beings that with all that on the outside and on the other side of that gate the garden where they knew holy perfection in the presence of the living God can you see this can you see that Adam and Eve with their children bringing them to that gateway and saying to their kids that's home in there is home. And it's where we're going. You know, you read the Bible, it starts in the garden and it ends in the garden. It's going home. So don't let your hearts be troubled. God will be with you. Your soul is anchored in heaven. Amen.